Stories are the bedrock of culture and civilization. I love stories, and I love a great storyteller who connects with me. Jesus teaches life-changing truths in his stories. His stories are, we call them parables. And a parable is defined as a fictitious narrative by which either the duties of men or the things of God are portrayed. And in this week's Kingdom Encounter, Jesus teaches his disciples and us another lesson about the beauty of the heart of God using a parable. Today we're in Matthew chapter 20, at the very beginning of the chapter, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Well, I've never worked in a vineyard, so I figured if I'm going to know the most I can regarding this parable, I'd best read up on what one does when working in a vineyard, and I found a job description. A vineyard worker is responsible for performing regular routine tasks required to maintain and care for grapevines, one that can work in all vineyard operations throughout the life cycle of a vine, from spring pruning to fall harvest. Uh, some things that are part of the responsibilities of a vineyard worker are cane cutting, fertilizing, fruit thinning, harvesting, sorting of wine grapes, hoeing, leafing, planting, pruning, root removal, shoot tipping, staking, tying. Someone who's got to be able to follow directions, to work independently, to work well with others. Someone who must work, be able to work outdoors in extremes of heat, humidity, cold, and other inclement weather conditions. Someone who must be able to walk on uneven ground. Someone who can work long hours. Someone who can repeatedly use one's hands and endure long periods of standing, walking, bending. There's a lot to it. Now that we have somewhat of a visual, Jesus tells us about this landowner wanting to go find workers for his vineyard. The landowner goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard, and we that's really all we know. We don't know anything else. And in chapter 20, verse 2, Jesus says that when the landowner had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. The landowner and the laborers negotiate a contract. They agree. And that's really a pretty tall order in any context, is it not, to agree. The landowner communicates what is expected and what the wage will be. The laborers understand what is expected and what the wage will be. The two parties settle on a denarius. A denarius will be the day's wage for these workers. The laborers understand what is expected and what the wage will be, and the landowner sends the workers to the task at hand. In verse 3, we read that the landowner goes out about the third hour and sees others standing idle in the marketplace. And we're not given the reason why in the story, uh, but the landowner goes out about the third hour, and this would be around 9 o'clock in the morning. He sees some others standing around idle. 
in the marketplace. We don't know why they're hanging out, why they're loitering. We're not told why these others are not doing something productive. But to these, the landowner says, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they go. The landowner calls these others into the vineyard. He calls them to work. There's no salary negotiation. Whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is right, trust me to reward you sufficiently. They follow the command. He calls them to work, and off they go. Again, we're not given the reason why in the story itself. Maybe the landowner has another hillside of the vineyard in, that he needs tended. Whatever the reason, they go to work. In verse 5, again, the landowner goes out about the sixth and the ninth hour and does the same thing. We're starting to see a pattern here. The landowner goes out around the sixth hour, that's around noontime, and then again at the ninth hour, around 3 p.m. All throughout the day, the landowner returns to the marketplace and finds others standing idly by in the marketplace, and the end of verse 5 states that the landowner did the same thing. Again, we're not given the reason why in the story itself, maybe the landowner has another hillside of the vineyard that needs tending, but that's not the point of the story. Regardless of the reason, he calls them and they go to work. Verse 6, And about the eleventh hour the landowner went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? The eleventh hour. It's now close to five, five o'clock in the afternoon. The landowner goes out and yet again finds others standing around. The landowner asks a question, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they tell him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. For whatever reason no one has hired these others, the landowner sends them to work. And in verse 8, Jesus says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. At the end of the day, the foreman is told, Go this way. Pay them in reverse order from whence they came, counterclockwise. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. The guys that waltzed in at 5 p.m. get a denarius. Then 3 o'clock, then noon, then 9 a.m. And in verse 10, Jesus tells us, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Anticipation is sometimes an awful thing. These ones who have been hired first, they're, they're watching and they start to anticipate. Well, if he's getting that much, then I bet I'll get... Sometimes you watch a situation and you think you know what's going to happen. Sometimes anticipation can leave one feeling awkward and embarrassed. What happened? 
they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And Jesus says that when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. Grumbling, grumbling. But the Old Testament calls it murmuring. Snide, snidey comments. You know, some of those under-the-breath mutters. These are symptoms of something not settled. But some of the workers, some are saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat, the scorching heat of the day. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, Some of us have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. You've given to the ones who came at the very end of the day. Uh, You've made them our equal. Hmm. Have you ever felt that way? I have. You know what I'm talking about. We've been here the whole time. That phrase, I was here first. And boy, those are dangerous thoughts when it comes to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Dangerous thoughts when it comes to church life. Phrases like, I was here first. Jesus tells us in verse 13 that the landowner answered and said to one of the workers, those first ones that came, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The landowner overhears this grumbling and he responds, I can I can kind of picture him. I, I bet he smiles a kind, gentle smile. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And then I'm sure silence falls. (laughs) The landowner, I believe, kindly continues, Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Off you go, but, but I wish to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. And then the landowner asks a question. And there in verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? I'm the landowner. I own all of this. Is it against the law for me to do as I wish with what I own? No, that's not the problem. Is your eye envious because I am generous? And then Jesus says in verse 16, So the last shall be first, and the first last. That that phrase, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, we've seen this already. It, It notates some kind of pecking order, doesn't it? Matthew 18 began with the disciples asking, Who would be the greatest Who would be the greatest among them? And Matthew 19 finds Peter trying to claim the disciples' worth because of all of their sacrifices. The first ones chosen, are they the greatest? The ones who have tried to do everything according to their plan. In in chapter 19, and, and then today in chapter 20, Jesus tells the disciples, and he tells us, the last shall be first and the first last. But 
at the end of the day, we still want to make it about what we've done and what we feel like we deserve. That's our default mode. That's our factory preset. That's our flesh talking. What did the landowner say? That question that he asked at the very end of the story, is your eye envious because I am generous? Maybe, just maybe, we are envious of God's ability to be able to be gracious in a way that has nothing to do with merit. Let me say that again. Maybe we are envious of God's ability to be able to be gracious in a way that has nothing to do with merit. There's a song that's become popular in the last in the last couple of seasons. The name of it is called Reckless Love. And there's a refrain that says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. Do you remember the story from a couple of weeks ago about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one which is strayed? And then the chorus of the song continues, And I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Reckless. Reckless because his love is still so difficult to comprehend by our merit-based mental process. The grace found in God giving himself away for us. Jesus, the Word made flesh. God's grace is in the amazement business, is it not? God's grace is boundless. God's grace is surprising. God's grace is sovereign. God's grace is not comparison-based. It's not comparison-based. And this comparison game, we all play it. At the end of the day, what about me? That resounding question, what about me? Peter asked that last week in, in chapter 19. What about us? Behold, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus. What then will there be for us? The comparison game. We'll see this again at the very end of John's Gospel. In, in John chapter 21, there's a final conversation between Jesus and Peter. After Jesus' betrayal by Judas, abandonment by his disciples, denial by Peter, Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, which, thanks be to God, defeats sin and death and hell. After all of that, Jesus returns, and one morning he greets the disciples by the sea. They've been out fishing. He fixes them breakfast by the sea, and he welcomes Peter back into the ministry, reinstating Peter to the leadership of the coming church. Jesus commissions Peter to tend to the flock of believers. And then Jesus says these words to Peter, words that point to the fate that is awaiting Peter. In John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. 
But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, Follow me. Peter, who once said he would follow Jesus to the death, has now been given a word of foreshadowing about his own demise. And Peter, he he turns around and he sees his fellow disciple, John. Peter sees him and then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? (laughs) Again, the comparison game. Jesus says to Peter, If I want him to remain until I come, until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. At the end of the day, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 18 verse 11 tells us that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And regardless of how great the disciples think that they are or how you or I might feel like we've got it all worked out, we might feel like we should be the first in line. But as the old saying goes, at the end of the day, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all lost without Christ. And the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about God's amazing grace is that Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, went to the cross for all of us, regardless of where we think we stand. I had a conversation with a neighbor this week, and she talked about how her grandmother trusted Christ, and she thought that was good enough for her. Well, Grandma can't trust Jesus for my neighbor's salvation. At the end of the day, each one has to make that choice to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of one's sins. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, each one. But here's the good news of salvation. It's available for everyone. If you can admit to the reality of your sin, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, the Lord of your life who destroyed your sin on the cross, and the Lord of your life who wants to lead you away from that sin, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today can be the day of your salvation. Don't wait until you find yourself at the end of the day.